Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCSZ. I am your host, as always, Gregory Carter, colorectal registrar from up north in Edinburgh, and joined by my friend Ceci. How are you? I'm fine, Greg. How's you? Doing well, thank you. Today on the podcast, we have Professor Kevin Turner, consultant urologist. Kevin, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, nice to be with you. Great. Pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We're looking forward to chatting to you today on a range of topics, but usually on the podcast, we start by getting to know you better. So for those who might not have met you in the past, who is Kevin Turner? Uh, I'm a consultant urologist um, in Bournemouth in Dorset uh, on the South Coast. Uh, I've been a consultant for uh, 13 years. Um I'm married to Katie, a teacher. Um, we have uh, teenage twins. Um, and uh, outside of surgery, I'm passionate about uh, community, uh, running, uh, faith, uh, and uh, VW camper vans. Uh, tell me more. VW camper vans? That's, that's the, obviously everything else you said was, was critically important uh, to know, but VW camper vans? I wasn't particularly expecting that. Oh, well, I, I grew up um, in a family with an old style um, bay window camper van, if that means anything to the listeners. And uh, I remember it, as do my siblings, incredibly fondly. It's only recently I've realized that my parents didn't remember it anywhere near as fondly as uh, unreliable, uh, particularly in uh, damp weather. But uh, my childhood memories were that everything about having a camper van was good, but we had it for a depressingly short period of time when I was young. So it had long been an ambition of mine that uh, when I could, we would have a camper van in our family, which we now do. And we've uh, enjoyed uh, driving it and staying in it uh, near and far. All right. So staycations are fairly frequent in the Turner household, are they? Well, let's put it like this, Greg. We don't deliberately decide to sleep in the camper van when it's parked in the drive. <laughs> um, but but uh, we have taken it away for short breaks where we are in Dorset, but also much longer trips, uh, driving it down through Europe as well. I mean, if it's such a storied part of your childhood, I would not be surprised if you took the kids in there for a night or two, even when it's parked outside the house. But that's that's interesting to hear, actually. It sounds as though some of the quickfire questions then may also prove to be exciting. So, why urology? Why not? It's the best uh, specialty in medicine. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Kept, it's the best kept secret in uh, surgery. We remain the true. Uh, general surgeons able to turn our hand to open endoscopic, uh, laparoscopic and robotic surgery it has a great mix of uh, congenital and acquired, benign and malignant, um, traumatic and non-traumatic disease, paediatrics and, and adult. Uh, there is no better specialty than urology. Kevin, you get the medal for having come on the podcast, taking that question, turning it on its head and throwing it right back at me. So, touche. Actually, actually, part of the truth is that I worked um, for an inspirational urologist when I was uh, in old money, an SHO, in new money, uh, a core surgical trainee um, who took me under his wing and showed me that urology is truly exciting. In fact, this is completely true. The first operation I was ever involved with as a urology uh, SHO was a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. And little did I know that that's pretty much hen's teeth surgery. I just thought every day in urology was was involved exposing the great vessels. And uh, after that, I was hooked. Have you been disappointed since or? Not at all. Of course. Okay. But, you know, you might have heard of colorectal. We, we can boast a lot of the things that you talked about there. What was it you said? Open endoscopic laparoscopic robotic tick 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 uh benign malignant tick tick trauma tick uh pediatric tick maybe uh, uh no. yeah, yeah, um as our listeners know i am the true pediatric surgeon in the group so not a competition Greg. <laughs> okay back to you kevin moving on so i take your point urology is the creme de la creme of not just surgical specialties but really your career choices but if it wasn't an option, what would you do? Well, within medicine, if it wasn't urology? Uh, no, the world is your oyster. Do what you want. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I'd love to write a best-selling novel, but uh, that seems unlikely. Um, I'd uh, love to play in a band, and uh, though I don't play anything in a band, I am in 
a rock band, so that ambition has been fulfilled. Okay, so, <laughs> so <laughs> this is going to be one of those podcasts where you you drop something that is mind blowing, but you just put it at the end as a sentence. Dot dot dot. Uh, so I have to ask you then: rock band expand. Oh, Greg, you're doing a good job of pretending that you don't know about the band. But if, in case there is anyone listening who hasn't heard of us, um, we are the Gastric Band. Strapline, we're big, but we used to be bigger. Nice. May, may I just point out the irony in all of this? We started the podcast by suggesting there is no better specialty than urology. However, when you get the opportunity to name your band, you pick a GI organ to name your band after. It sounds as though there was ambition someday to be a gastrointestinal surgeon. Not at all, Greg. I'm surprised you didn't spot that it was a hu- that it was a humorous name dry- designed to uh, to poke fun. No, they didn't. I, I took it at face value. Uh, thank okay. you. <laughs> Excellent. Gastric band um, just sounded like a better name than the catheters. I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. Could have been the catheter balloon. It could have been anything. I, I can't. You know, I, I genuinely knew nothing about urological instruments, so I, I couldn't even think of one at the moment. So we're going to move on. My final question for you was that if today Noah's Ark came along and you had one per- well i think your your wife is already on uh you know dearest and, and loved ones are on as well who else would you say if you have one spot left who would it be oh jeepers you guys could have uh warned me about bearing that. in mind all your colleagues are listening to this podcast all your friends are listening they're not on on noah's ark yet it is just you and your immediate family who else gets on and why so this is a completely unthought through answer. But uh, but I'd take Barack Obama. Oh, I must say I was not expecting that. Please tell me why. Oh, because I just think he'd be, uh, there'd be endless great conversations. Um, and uh, I, can, I can think of a whole range of things that I would enjoy talking to him about. Yes, we can. Thank you. So that's, that was actually, that, that, that totally caught me off guard. So we'll, we'll move on. You, by the way, have done really well on the quick wire questions. Well done. I didn't, um, didn't realise you were keeping score. <laughs> every guest that comes on, uh, there's a league table going and someday we'll disclose it. But until then, your training journey, when you look at it, it seems to be fairly varied, both in experiential training to where have you where you've been if you just walk us through what training was like for you to where you are now uh yeah so uh i graduated from uh oxford and did house jobs sort of around that part of of the country uh i knew i knew from the beginning i wanted to do surgery though i didn't know what um so i did an anatomy demonstrating job like many of us did then and then was appointed to the oxford sho ct rotation it was during that time that uh, I met the inspirational urologist uh, who I mentioned earlier on also during that time that uh, I met my wife fell in love got married bought a house Um, at that stage doing a higher degree was almost an absolute requirement to get into um, what was SPR training now ST3 level training Uh, and there was also very little job or geographical security and we needed that when we just got married so I took a two-year research post in molecular biology of renal cancer in Oxford and uh, did my higher degree there my wife had lived and worked in Scotland before I met her uh, and she's a teacher as I mentioned we both therefore in jobs where we were highly mobile and we just thought we're not going to live our lives only in one place where could we go that would be really fun so I applied for the East of Scotland rotation um, was delighted to be appointed started in Inverness on the 1st of January um, which was pretty hardcore um, weather-wise but an absolute delight urologically and professionally Uh, it was a wonderful place to spend my first year as a registrar and then I spent the rest of my time in the East of Scotland training scheme um, except for my almost final year when I went to Melbourne to do a fellowship in neuro-oncology, which by then was my my interest. Very nice. I think that, that 
That's great, actually, that you you had such a varied approach, and I presume you'd have seen all uh, calibers of individuals in, in your travels. What was it about Edinburgh that made you not stay? <laughs> Nothing at all. Uh, we we loved it. Um, we were extremely fortunate to have lived there, and uh, we really enjoyed it. Our twins were born in uh, Edinburgh. Royal Infirmary and we made many great friends there. Um, but um, when the time comes to um, become a consultant, a whole load of factors come into play, um, both uh, family, geography, uh, professional and just um, opportunity because jobs in a, in a, in a subspecialty of a subspecialty don't come up all that often. So um, so a job came up in Bournemouth. It was the right fit for us for all sorts of those criteria that I mentioned. And uh, and that's uh, why we moved. Okay. You talked of a specialty of a specialty of a subspecialty. What is your niche? I'm a euro-oncologist. A few years ago, I would have said I was a general euro-oncologist doing kidney, bladder and prostate cancer. But uh when I was appointed, I was one of four consultant urologists in Bournemouth. I'm now one of 11, and therefore um, there is an increasing degree of self-specialization. So I guess now I say, I would say, um, at least in terms of my clinical work, that I'm uh, a pelvic oncologist with, with, a, with a fairly strong general urology strand to my work as well. Excellent. And that lends itself to robotic surgery, I believe. And I presume there's an interesting story around getting a robot to your department. Um, well, I guess as a story, uh, it's probably similar to many other people's stories. I think um, at that time, um, it w- it became beyond any doubt that uh, laparoscopic surgery was going to be central to urology, not just for uh, laparoscopic renal surgery, but increasingly for laparoscopic pelvic surgery. And, and um, about around about the time I was appointed as a consultant, um, I'd done quite a lot of renal laparoscopy and a number of us were getting trained in laparoscopic prostatectomy, um, which was uh, a, a challenging operation. And I went to Germany on and off um, for three months to learn how to do it. Um, um, but even while I was learning to do it, the rise of the robot was obvious and uh, it became clear that really no prostatectomies were going to be done in the UK that weren't done with a robotic system. So we realized, uh, like many other people did at the same time, that um, that we needed to acquire a robot and then began a whole process of thinking, my goodness, how does one buy a 1.6 million pound piece of equipment? Um, and all I would say is you have to talk to a huge number of people. You have to be very persuasive. You have to um, be prepared for the knockbacks and you just have to stick in there and know that eventually they will realize. And eventually, I don't quite know how, eventually um, everyone did realize the local GP groups, the funders, the hospital, the hospital management that we needed a robot. And uh, I'm delighted that we've had one now since, I think, uh, around about seven years, but I'm not entirely sure. And I think that's, that speaks true to a lot of departments, both in the past and currently, who are suddenly realizing the the role of robotic surgery. So colorectal surgery, which is dear to my heart, seems to be slightly behind the curve in, terms, in general uh, as compared yeah, to... I agree, general. in general, yeah. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to let that go. You <laughs> asked for that. I did. But in terms of getting the you know into robotic pelvic surgery at the moment, the one question would be around... The fundraising element of it, it seems as though part of that includes lots and lots of marathons to raise <laughs> funds. Well, in our case, I don't think it included any marathons, although, oh, really? oh, although, um, although I uh, continue to derive a lot of pleasure from going out for, for long runs, um, but it didn't involve any sponsored marathons. It, it always involves a huge amount of money, and um, I've seen every pattern of funding a robot. I've seen the single funder walk up to a hospital and say thanks so much for looking after me what can i buy you uh, and i them know that. that we in scotland particularly in edinburgh or fife which is a little town in, in scotland oh i know i worked after that oh did you i, I worked in uh, dunfermline for a good chunk of my training yeah oh, excellent so let the individual know that somewhere in fife uh, we've got room for a robot they can fund us and i will look after them for the rest of I will. his days or her days i will Thank you. Wow, 
Greg, what can I say? I think, Kevin, you have to win the award for the one host, the one guest we've had so far that has nearly bested Greg Ekata in the game of quick fire questions. Oh, he has managed. I, am <laughs> I think your comebacks are so great. Um, we're, I feel like we could talk to you forever and about your clinical journey. But um, if it's OK, I think we should just get into the meat of the other side of your life, which is well-being and resilience. Now, um, as some of our listeners may know, you have been a visiting professor with Bournemouth University working with the Surgeons Wellbeing Research Team for a little while now. Do you want to tell us how you got into that and how your journey has been so far? Yeah, thank you. Um, Do you know, like a lot of decisions in life, I can't completely remember. Um, And um, once you've worked out uh, a story to tell about a decision that almost becomes the reason for the decision even if it wasn't the reason originally it's a little bit like how all doctors get asked you know why are you a doctor why are you a doctor I can tell you what what part of the story is part of the story is that um, a patient of mine who'd undergone major surgery died in the post-optive period um, having having essentially got through the difficult part of the recovery and just uh, um, some minor sort of social tweaks to sort out I spoke to him in the evening before I left work um, and the following morning he died from what it turns out to be a um, cardiac complication from previously unrecognized cardiac disease and and I um, remember reflecting at the time on my reaction to that and I also remember reflecting again when we got the PM report and having a having a reflection, which I'm not completely proud of, which was when we got the PM report, thinking to myself, okay, so that wasn't my fault. And and it got me interested in thinking about how surgeons react to uh, when things go wrong, uh, what support there is, um, the assignation of blame, the determination of an event as either a complication or an error. And I honestly did not much more than Google how do surgeons react to adverse events and found that there was not much literature. It's certainly, there's certainly some, but not much. And as we may come on to the literature, such as it was then um, was uh, predominantly based in the States and had a number of confounding factors, I thought. And so, and this bit, I do remember very clearly, I Googled professor of psychology, university of Bournemouth, because that's on my doorstep. And I sent her a you don't know me, but email saying I'm a local surgeon. I'm interested in this. And that led to uh, a few meetings over coffee um, and then some much more detailed discussions about what we might do and how we might raise some money um, and how we might um, do some meaningful research in this space. And I suppose um, a couple of things have remained driving themes. Uh, One is we wanted to do more than just describe something. and we wanted to put some objective data on the things that we found out and on the interventions that we want to try to deliver. You've said some very sobering things about you know when things go wrong and even as trainees it's something a lot of us have had to deal with and that whole um, idea of the relief that you've not caused it directly but unfortunately as surgeons we are not perfect and there will be that patient where we could have done things better so where has your research taken you in terms of adverse effect events surgeons well-being and when you actually are in the wrong I know there's been some surveys and randomized controlled trials in the works yeah I mean I suppose the thing that 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 continues to surprise me and I suppose continues to motivate me is that the experience of something going wrong in surgery is absolutely universal. There is no surgeon who has not um, felt culpable or affected by an adverse outcome in a patient. It's also a universal truth that surgeons can be profoundly affected by it. and we we now have data, as I may come on to, that that, that support that statement. Um, and yet we've been fabulously unable to talk about it. And I find that 
extraordinary. And, and, you know, we have shown ourselves as being able to talk about other things that surgeons previously have been really bad at talking about. So we have in recent years shown ourselves to be able to talk about things like communication skills. You know, when I was first qualified as a doctor, the idea of consultant surgeons going on a communication skills course would have been laughable. But but now not to go on one would seem strange. And so surgical culture and thinking can adapt. But but we haven't adapted to this fact that that things universally that the experience of something going wrong in surgery is universal that surgeons are profoundly affected by it and yet we don't really know how much and we don't really know what to do about it and and this has been one of the things that keeps me going with research and and you know um I suppose I've done a number of different types of research um, and anyone listening who's done research will agree with me when I say that there are many dark days in research. It can be extremely difficult. There are multiple disappointments. Um, there are moments of, of crying with frustration when things don't go the way you want them to go. But one of the things that's kept me going with, with this type of research is that most of the time when we speak or write about it, somebody will contact us and say, I'm so glad you're talking about that. We really need to talk about that more. Um, and so, uh, sorry, I slightly lost the thread of your question, Cecil. <laughs> you shouldn't, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have pressed the go button. Uh, I won't stop. Um, but, but, um, you know, I, I, it just strikes me as odd. And, and like, and like many things in life, which when you take a step back and realise they're odd, when you're in the midst of it, the blindingly obvious sometimes doesn't strike you. Um, and it just seems to me that the the profession um, is waking up a bit too slowly to the fact that we're affected when things go wrong. And and I mean, it's not just about how it affects you personally or professionally. Even and and surgeons come at this from all different angles. But but you know, even if it affects the patient care that you deliver because you become risk averse or you order more investigations or you avoid certain procedures, or even if it affects your employing organisation because they don't want surgeons who who are in any way hampered. You know, everyone looking at this problem must recognise that, that if we can understand more about how surgeons are affected when things go wrong, and if we can mitigate that impact, then that's good for everyone. And, and there's one other thing I must say before you come back at me, and um, because I need to make this really clear, I and everyone else who works in this area knows that the overwhelming, um, the overwhelmingly important thing when something goes wrong is the good of the patient and the, and those that those that that love them and it is right that the prime focus is always um on putting things right for the patient duty of candor explaining and caring this is not about surgeons being the most important harmed people in this situation but it is about recognizing that when all of that other stuff has been done surgeons are harmed too um you say that you lost the thread of my question, but I think your answer actually embodies everything that I was looking to gain. And I am one of those people who's very glad that you're doing this sort of work. Certainly in surgery, there is that culture, sadly, of not seeing very much. And it creates an illusion that everyone seems to be coping better than you are. And that's really sad. And I wholeheartedly agree with your point about the patient being at the heart of what we do. But at the end of the day, if we're not right, we cannot care adequately for the patients after that one. So if we can do things to make sure our well-being is addressed, then it just makes us better overall. I don't know what you think, Greg. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I applaud you, Kevin, and everyone else in this area or, or in, in this sector, because the question of you're, you're surprised why we don't talk about it. And I wonder if the answer to that is simply we're not quite at a stage where embracing vulnerability comes naturally to us. We've all, we know the complications are relatively inevitable. We do our best to avoid them and the system is designed uh, to avoid them and, and adverse effects. But despite the best will in the world, sometimes they happen. And the ability to sit, reflect, and be honest about how that's made us feel, it's often very difficult for surgeons. And, you know, you talking about it, you raising awareness and, and teaching us about it will help us in future to be able to talk about it in a safe way, learn from it and be better for it. 
Definitely. And speaking of safe, um, my favorite thing in the world is acronyms. I like them even more than backronyms, but that's not a topic for this podcast. You have recently been involved. Yeah, sorry, what's a backronym? Craig. Oh, okay. After, after, after this podcast, <laughs> we will have a discussion about backronyms. I feel so sad sure. that you don't know this, but um, back on topic. Um, one acronym that um, you are very familiar with, Kev, is the SAFER project. So that's done with um, the Royal College of Surgeons of England, one of our sister colleges. Do you want to chat a little bit about that and the response you've gotten so far from it? Yeah, thank you. So um, I guess there are three main strands to the work that we've done so far. One is uh, a national survey um, to generate some meaningful data about um, the impact of adverse events on surgeons in the UK. Um, and, and we may come back to the, that, that. The other is to go beyond just describing the problem and actually try and do something about it. And we've um, been involved in a randomized controlled trial. Um, and I mean, let's face it, all doctors like randomized controlled trials. Um, we've been involved in a randomized controlled trial of resilience training in surgical trainees. And as far as we know, um, that's not been done before. Um, but the third strand was the one that we didn't really go looking for, but got thrust upon us. And that's the one um, you refer to, SAFAR, Surgical Adverse Events First Aid Response. And and I guess we got involved in this reluctantly, really, because I mentioned already that people um, have been very kind to contact us and share experiences when we've spoken about this or written about it. And a number of people um, sent emails essentially saying, when th- something goes wrong, nobody really knows what to do with the surgeon. And what you realize is that when something goes wrong, there are immediately multiple involved stakeholders. And again, uh, I recognize that the most important of those is the patient and they're the one, the people that love the patient. Um, But from the professional point of view, the multiple multiple involved stakeholders, of course, include the surgeon, um, the trust, um, the defense organization, uh, the union, um, the communications department, maybe the GMC. And all of those stakeholders actually have some positive things to offer. And I don't mean to to denigrate them, but they also have some requirements that have to be fulfilled. Um, and nobody, it seems, coordinates that process. And um, I think it came became clear to us that the process was often spectacularly badly handled. And the person who knew least about what was going on was the surgeon themselves. And this boils down to some some really, really practical things like, is it still okay to come into work? And again, if I may go down another cul-de-sac, let's not underestimate the the crushing impact of being sent home on gardening leave with a sort of don't phone us, we'll phone you sort of attitude. I mean, that's that's utter, utter madness, but that's what happens so some real practical things like can I come to work if I can what can I do and also some some much bigger existential questions for the surgeon like am I doing the right type of surgery do I need some mentorship do I need some retraining and um, we just realized that there was no coordination of of this um, and that some things are done well the trusts are often good at discharging their duty of candor the defense organizations are, of course, uh, expert in advising on um, aspects of defense. But who coordinates it? Who has a prime focus on surgeon well-being? And the answer is, well, no one really. Um, and so what we decided to do was just to gather a group of people from each, largely from each of those stakeholder organizations I mentioned, and bring them together in a room and say and ask them um, what what does you what is your your institution's expertise in this area? What are the requirements um, that you have, and how can we come up with a coordinated process? And so the discussions that that led to SAFAR were were born. Um, as you mentioned, RCS England um, were kind enough to host that process, and the SAFAR guidance has become um, enshrined in a um, RCS England publication called a, a Good Practice Guideline, which came out um, immediately before Christmas. That is such important work because there's very little, as you say, about the practicalities on 
of dealing with adverse events and supporting surgeons. I mean, if I may share a little personal anecdote, I remember as a more junior registrar having to attend um, a theatre session, which unfortunately led to the death of a patient that because of its nature of paediatric surgery, I'd known this child since he was born and I was due to be doing an overnight on call. And um, as you say, no one really knew what to do with me. I ended up getting sent home and called after a few days and, and the waiting was absolutely horrendous. So if there are toolkits that can help to support surgeons, not just when things go wrong, but for various things like bereavement, returning to work after less than full time, supporting people in research, there's so many ways that such toolkits can be applicable. That kind of brings me to the next bit of the podcast, which is discussing resilience and just being human. From the work that you've been doing and your experience as a consultant surgeon, I have a question for you. Do you think that surgeons are born as copers or they're made to be copers because of the surgical training program or indeed do our, does our interview process select for people who are just more able to cope with day-to-day life and not show weakness so to speak? Um, yeah what a what a great question I mean there is only one honest answer to that question which is I don't know and and I actually challenge anyone to answer that question because the data um, just aren't there what what do we know with absolute certainty we know that surgeons are really poor at engaging with existing support mechanisms and note I didn't say that existing support mechanisms are poor many of them are excellent and they are delivered by a range of institutions um, colleges, specialist societies, BMA, defence organisations. But what is absolutely certain is that surgeons are poor at engaging with them. Now, you, you, you could therefore conclude that that's because surgeons don't need to engage with them um, more as much as other physicians. And if you reach that conclusion, you have to say, well, why is that? Is it because surgeons are born resilient, as you suggest? Is it that the rigours of surgical training force us to become resilient, the school of hard knocks, Or is it that surgical training is such a wonderfully supportive environment that although ordinary resilience individuals go into surgical training, we're so good at looking after each other that we become resilient by the end of it? Now, I guess you can tell from the way I'm articulating that, um, that that, uh, I very much doubt whether we're brilliant at developing resilience in each other. What our data suggest is, um, if I might summarize in a phrase, that surgeons I'm sorry to disappoint you all out there that surgeons are very ordinary people doing um, what, you know, uh, it won't surprise you to hear me say is an extraordinary job. Um, I make no claims for the absolute uniqueness of surgery, but I do make some claims that that even within medical specialties, there are some aspects of surgery which are unique or nearly unique that make it perhaps particularly challenging. Um, I've been I've been challenged about that statement by interventional cardiologists and gastroenterologists and so forth. Um, but I know I'm talking to a, a friendly audience. But um, th- yeah, I think that the we're ordinary people. Um, uh, the, the data that we have suggests that we are no more resilient. In fact, we might even be slightly less resilient. Um, but I don't know that for sure. There is there's a whole lot written about this um, from, from surgical personality type, our surgeon psychopaths, through to the prevalence of burnout and depression in, in surgeons. Um, and there is actually some evidence to show that surgeons have a degree of stress immunity. And, and, and thank goodness for that. You know, um, who wants to be operated on some on by someone who hasn't got a degree of stress immunity? When when the situation becomes stressful in surgery, you want your surgeon to be able to keep going. So um, great that we've got a degree of stress immunity. But but are we immune to the injury um, that comes from the insult of adverse events in surgery, categorically, no. Absolutely not. And I think those are sage comments, particularly the, the title of this podcast is going to be We Are Ordinary People, quote unquote. But you know, to your point, that, that is absolutely true. And are we able to cope? Well, not always. So what would you say out there, the concept of the second victim, and how we as a community or society can support that second victim through adverse effects, through complaints or through complications. So 
the, the, the term the second victim has become so enshrined in this um, sort of discussion that it may be difficult to shake. Um, listeners who have been interested in this area may have seen some correspondence in the last couple of years about whether that is appropriate. And, and people who say it's not appropriate come both from the sort of, if you like, the, the patient lobby and, and the professional lobby. Um, it was coined by Albert Wu uh, about 20 years ago. And, you know, the most important thing about that term is it recognises that healthcare providers themselves sustain harm. I, I actually prefer the phrase second casualty. I think that the word victim implies um, a perpetrator and it may imply culpability. Um, whereas I think the term casualty recognises that harm can come through through no fault, if you like. Um, but anyway, that, that's getting into perhaps too much into semantics. And I'm just comfortable recognising that, that healthcare providers are harmed when things go wrong. Um, you know, the whole concept of resilience, I find absolutely fascinating. And, and, and I'd like to sort of debunk a couple of myths about it, really. You know, resilience is not enshrined in your DNA. It is not an innate quality where you're born with X amount of it, and that amount of it will remain with you from cradle to grave. You know, any serious study of resilience um, would recognize that that, 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 it, that statement is, is false. Um, you know, resilience itself is not resilient. So resilience can go up and down. Uh, depending on age, circumstance, and a multitude of other factors. And outside of medicine, the professional psychology world has long recognized that resilience is a changeable quantity. People can be more or less resilient. Where there is less agreement is how you go about changing that quantity. But outside of medicine, there is um, experimental data to show that resilience training can change an individual's resilience. Um, there's another aspect of this, which if we don't pick up now, guys, we must pick up, which is the potential danger in the fact that any resilience discussion puts the, the locus of interest on the individual. And we, we must have an opportunity to, to pick up the, 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 the potential problems with, with that. But um, anyway, again, let's, said too let's much. do that. Let's do that now. What are the potential problems? Well, um, again, those interested in this area will will have read some absolutely appropriate and um, impassioned um, statements in the medical literature saying, look, hold on a minute. Let's not use individual resilience as another stick to beat surgeons with. It put It puts the focus of the problem on the surgeon and says, you're not resilient enough. Now, okay, it may it may accept that that you're not born with X amount of resilience, and it may accept that resilience can go up and down, but but it still says that you need to be made more resilient, and we've got a fabulous new training course, just another one to fit into your already packed um, list of obligatory courses to yep. move you from your inadequate resilience to being more resilient, and and people have very rightly pointed out that that that, that that's a problem be, because. Um, the reason why doctors need to be more resilient uh, is not because they're not resilient enough in the first place, but because the institution, systems, culture uh, and all the other things they work in are, are, are lacking. And, and, and don't point the finger at me. Fix the system. And, and of course, um, you know, I would argue that both things are true. And um, Helen Boulderston, who's one of the academics I, I work with, um, I credit her with 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 helping me to understand this um, most really. Um, and she uses an example um, of um, poverty um, and it's linked to um, mental health morbidity. Um, you know, it is undeniable that poverty is linked to an increased um, incidence of mental health morbidity. Now, what, what, what do you say about that? Do, do you say to people caught in that situation, we're not going to intervene for your mental health morbidity. We are, in fact, going to fix global poverty. Now, of course, you, you wouldn't say that. You would say, we're going to do both. We're going to, we're going to address the, the ingrained problems in the systems and society, but we're also going to 
give you strategies that, that are applicable to you as an individual. And I guess I see the same about surgical resilience. Of course, I'm not arguing that we just need to toughen up and cope with what the system throws at us. And it's up to others better than me um, and much more aware than me to address some of these institutional, um, cultural and professional problems. But meantime, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to ignore the fact that personal resilience can be enhanced. It, it can. You know, there's data to show it can and we have data to show it can. Um, so let so let so let's do something about both sides of the of the problem. I think uh, you know the point you make about resilience there. I cannot agree with more, and I think that is one thing that we as a community need to wake up to. It's not a case of doctors, surgeons. We all need to be more resilient. There's more to it than that. And I remember last year, taking a year out as a leadership fellow and pre-COVID, one of the things we were grappling with was trainee well-being. And I remember being at a meeting and, you know, someone saying in the discussion piece, well, back in my day, back in my day, we had to cope. So therefore, we just need doctors to be tougher. Now, it's 2021, this is 2020, we would think that a lot has changed in time, but it appears not. In, in your experience, over the years, have you seen much has changed in, in this concept of resilience, um, well-being, and how we support each other? Well, uh, let's focus on the positives. Um, has much changed? I don't know. Is it changing? Yes. Um, and, you know, that partly, you know, you've got to be honest, that partly reflects a greater degree of comfort in society as a whole at um, being able to talk about how you're doing, how you feel, how you are, mental health, call it what you will. And, you know, mercifully, um, that the encouragement to people to be more comfortable about um, talking about those sorts of things and expressing those sort of things has come from multiple angles, um, including um, our own royal family, central government. You know, th this is this is not um, unique, uh, you know, our sportsmen and women, you know, and and, and let's be grateful for that. Um, so there is there is a move in society generally um, surgery, um, you know, no surprises, slightly behind the curve, but 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 we are beginning to talk about it. You know, this podcast is an example, um, and in you know we are absolutely not a lone voice um, in in the team in Bournemouth and many others in the UK and across the world um, are speaking into this space. So th there there is some change. Um, you know, there's a long long way to go. Do you know um, a it was only a small minority of people in our survey who admitted to being affected by an adverse event who spoke to anyone at all about about it and i'm not just talking about people who didn't speak to occupational health or or a confidential surgeon support line or 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 i'm talking about people who spoke to no one yeah. about it and do you know what we we, we for the, the people that did speak to someone we asked them and, and, you know, I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm stating the completely obvious, but the people who did speak to someone, we asked them how helpful it was. And they said it was fantastically helpful. So, you know, let's take something really, really basic to get out to all the surgeons out there. When something goes wrong, talking to someone about it is a helpful thing to do. And yet we don't do it. It's surprising how many quote unquote, obvious things that need to be said. If we look back in time to the origin of formal training in patient safety and human factors, just simple things like making sure the well-being of the team is addressed or that you think about ergonomics. When you say it now, it seems so obvious, but it still needed to be said. And it's quite sad that people do not appreciate, surgeons don't appreciate the value of unburdening yourself. And that leads me very nicely to my next question. You alluded in, in the previous part of our conversation that there are support networks there, just the engagement is poor. What are the examples or, or some examples of support networks that surgeons can turn to in times of um, adverse events and struggling after a complication? I mean, obviously, there, there are informal networks. And, and yeah, you know, since, since there was surgery, 
and there have been surgeons, surgeons have supported each other. And, you know, I, I do not dismiss the incredible value in opening up to colleagues in your own hospital or elsewhere, and the incredible value in surgeons sharing stories of, of, of what happened to them. And although when I've spoken about this kind of support before, I might have sounded uh, um, a bit dismissive, dismissive of it, um, you know, the, the let me tell you about a complication that happened to me conversation and the we just need to get you back to th into theatre conversation, uh, I do not dismiss those as being uh, totally useless um, and of course many surgeons will attest to the support that comes from non-medical friends and family as well and you know if our survey showed anything it showed that any talking is good but I think the thrust of your question is is what what is there beyond that and the, the answer is that there's quite a bit so um, your own occupational health department in your hospital your surgical college um, probably runs a confidential surgeon support line probably runs a surgical mentoring program um, your defence organisation is not just there to keep you out of court, um, that they are also there to support you, as are um, the BMA, um, the Practitioner Health Programme, the first NHS funded um, medical um, mental health service exclusively for doctors now um, expanding its reach. Um, so, and, and my apologies to anyone who's listening from another organization that I've missed out, but there are many. And in fact, um, the, the best summary of all that's available I, that I've seen recently is on the BMA website. Um, and there, there is a comprehensive list. Um, so, so and, and much of that I'm sure is excellent, but what we can say with confidence is that it goes underutilized. Well, there you have it, guys, straight from an expert, if you permit me to call you that, because I think you are in this field. There's so many avenues that you can turn to. And I just want to encourage everyone listening to don't stay silent. Talk about it. It's much healthier. Um, again, earlier in the conversation, you were saying how we really are just at the beginning of our journey with resilience, being human, understanding surgeons' reactions to things. What are the next steps and um, where, where's this sort of research going? Um, well, um, we, we have completed an RCT um, of surgical trainees. Uh, we have around about 80 participants randomised to either receive or not receive some one-on-one -on -one resilience training. Um, we designed a programme that um, we hoped would be broadly acceptable to surgeons. You know, no surgeon is gonna is gonna take a week out a year for their resilience training. So we did three two-hour sessions spread out over um, a period of time. Um, one on one, um, initial, most of the vast majority face to face. Although, of course, uh, COVID meant that the the end of our RCT was um, was online. Um, I can't tell you the results because we haven't analysed it yet. Um, so we'll, it remains to be seen. Um, what what do I hope? Well, if we're able to show any effect, then we need to do some research into how scalable that is. Not not every surgeon can meet with a trained therapist, and I'm not saying that this training is rigorous. But you do. I mean, the person delivering the training does at least have to have some knowledge of what they're doing. Um, not every surgeon in the UK can be visited. Can we? Can it be scaled to? Uh, a group context can it be done online as so many things clearly can now in the covid era era even though we didn't realize i mean i think my dream for this is is a recognition um that um understanding a bit more about yourself and how you might be impacted when things go wrong um and perhaps even understanding that because you know a bit more about yourself, the way in which you affect, you might be affected when things go wrong might even be fairly predictable, means that you might be able to anticipate and prepare for it. Now, of course, you can't prepare for every eventuality and there'll always be a need for a first aid response. But, you know, we do have courses for surgeons in training on how to be a year one consultant, how to deal with a complaint, how to deal with difficult colleagues. There are courses on how to start a private practice. And yet here we have something which is absolutely ubiquitous in surgery, and yet we don't train for it at all. And with the greatest respect to the wonderful people who train me, who taught me how to talk to patients, how to take a history, how to examine them, how to tie knots, how to do some really fairly complicated things. No one 
ever said to me, oh, just one other thing, Kevin, before I forget, before you're ready to flee the surgical <laughs> training nest, do you know that when you're a consultant surgeon, some things are going to go wrong and you're going to feel awful? No, no one said it. Um, so what's my dream? That the, I know the surgical training program is already full and getting um, even more packed. But could we have something in there which is which is just standard that we know something about ourselves something about the impact of adverse events and something about resilience kevin i hear your vision i share your vision and i think we collectively hope that that vision someday turns to reality we don't we talk a lot about when things go wrong but we should also talk about when things have gone right and this has gone right you have been amazing the work that you and your team are doing is amazing we do need to talk about it we should talk about it and we should have the safety to know that when things go wrong we'll have support from colleagues and many other organizations and it's important to recognize that there is a second casualty maybe not a victim but a but a casualty so uh we thank you for your time one final comment from ceci and i is um at the start you chose to take president obama with you on noah's ark and i think listening to you uh we can we can hear how you both will get along. I've never met him, but I can imagine that you both will get along very well. There'll be lots of um, thoughtful conversations and I'd love to be a fly on the wall. So if that happens, let me know and I'll, and I'll come along. But Kevin, thank you for your time and any right. final comments from you. You were not invited onto Noah's Ark. So there's oh. just his family, <laughs> his nearest and dearest and Obama. You are drowning, honey. You're drowning oh, with thanks. me. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Kevin, back to you for some positive comments for me. Oh, no, thank you. I mean, I'm grateful for the opportunity. It's been a delight. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I always welcome any thoughts from anyone. Um, um, email me. And how do we uh, get in touch with you? So uh, you can email me, kevin.turner at uhd.nhs.uk, um, or you'll find me on Twitter at you at, at eurodoco, U-R-O-D-O-C-O. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Great. And we've loved having you, Kevin. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, any other comments about the podcast or, or for Kevin can also come to comms, uh, C-O-M-M-S at rcsed.ac.uk. Until next time, Kevin, everyone else, uh, talk to each other, be kind to each other, and hopefully someday we'll make this world and our surgical community a better place. Until next time, take care. Bye, guys. Bye.